Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Lock and Key Unlocked, a podcast about Lock and Key, the comic book from IDW, and the upcoming Netflix adaptation of the same title. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. And we have a very special guest on this episode of the podcast. He is the editor of Lock and Key, the comic book, not the guy who was snipping up the stuff for Netflix, the footage or anything like that. Yep, snipping it up. Snipping it up. My uh, take on footage. <laughs> he's been nominated for two Eisner Awards. He's the creator of one of my favorite comic books, Zombies vs. Robots, and he is currently wow. president, publisher, and CCO of IDW, as well as Ooh. one of the executive producers on Lock and Key, the Netflix series. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Ryle. Chris. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. So excited to chat with you about this. Uh, we did a podcast with Gabriel Rodriguez. We've talked to Joe a bunch of times, but something that I don't think we've ever filled in, and I think this is a great place to start, is how did you decide or how did you end up hooking up Joe and Gabe? You know, I should mention before we talk about the book, um, I'm a fan of the podcast. I'm, I haven't heard the Gabe episode, which just dropped today, but the Aww. rest, I'm all caught up. I enjoy what you guys are doing. Oh, oh thank awesome, you so man. much. Thank you. Uh, well, we're, we're going to quit after this, but otherwise we're going <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so back, back to the distant origins of the book. Um, so when we first reached out to Joe, you know, we, we had read 20th century ghosts and thought this guy's got something special, something, something that feels like he could really take a, a comic book concept and sort of make it into something really special. And so we, you know, originally just said, Hey, what if we adapt some of your stories, you know, new author who we, aren't really acquainted with. And he said, yeah, that's, that's a thing, but rather what about this? And he showed us lock and key. And so as I was reading through it, um, then you start trying to envision who's going to be the best artist to help bring this thing to life in the right way. And Gabriel's a person I've worked with, um, since basically since my start at IDW, like I came in in 2004, he was already here doing CSI and even then, like, I could see how good he was and how much better he was than some of the material he was handed. Not that they were bad, but just that he was capable of doing so much more. And so over the years leading up to Lock and Keeve, and I'd been trying to sort of really manage the way Gabe's career unfolded here, which was putting him on more and more high-profile books. So we did the Land of the Dead book, the George Romero movie, and then we did the Beowulf adaptation with... Uh, you know, based on the Neil Gaiman movie. Um, and then Gabe and I spent 12 issues adapting the great and secret show with Clive Barker. And so I knew at this point, like Gabe's the guy, Gabe's the perfect person to do this. And so when you're trying to pair an artist with the writer and it's the writer's initial idea, you want to make the writer think they have say, (laughs) they they don't, but you, you want to give that illusion. And so I pulled some of Gabe samples and then I pulled a couple other really shitty samples and I said, Joe, 
here's who's available. And I showed him these three samples and there was only one right choice. Um, and he made it. And, and the great thing was it wasn't, it really quickly went from just being a writer and an artist working on a book together to just being these two guys that were just so, so simpatico and so just, you know, separate pieces of one whole telling the story in ways that just made it so much better than I think Joe, me or anybody envisioned it. Um, and you know, if you ever, Alex, I don't know if you ever sat with the two of them together, but they were, you know, Joe and Gabe were finishing each other's sentences and just, oh, yeah. just so in sync with the way they wanted to tell the story that it was, it's just always been one of those really special highlights for me of, you know, no matter what I've done here, this, this remains sort of the high bar for the way all of this stuff can work really well together. Uh, we were there the first time they met at a comic convention and it was very magical. Yeah. And um, although in Gabriel Rodriguez's defense, he is the most adorable human being, <laughs> I think maybe of all time and could probably get along with anybody. But yeah, the two of them together, you really put a dream team together. Yeah, it's funny. I've actually never met either guy in person. I only got to know them through this two-minute interview I heard on MTV. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was interview. a huge interview. That thing has really got legs. <laughs> no, but you're right. Like Gabe and Joe together are just two of the nicest, most genuine, most inventive, um, fun, interesting, smart, like talented people I think I could ever work with in this business. And so to have the two of them pairing up like they have is just, like I say, it's really just been this magical experience all along. So in uh, that case, then how hard oh. did you fight to get the character of Dr. Zalbin removed? <laughs> you know, I mean, every now and then as the editor, Joe will overrule some of my, I think really sound notes that, that just make a book better. And one of those was that doctor is sort of whatever is beyond superfluous <laughs> uh, but Joe said, look, it's fine. Nobody's going to read this far into that issue. Nobody's going to talk about it. And there certainly won't be 10 to 20 minutes spent on a podcast raving about this character. <laughs> so he put it back in. And I think we all realize the folly in Joe's actions now. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's the secret of most comic books that people don't know is you expect that people are going to read the first five pages and then just fall asleep, just like straight up yeah. well, get to the rest of the We movie. were actually talking, you know, the way you guys made it, well, uh, one of you, I guess, not all three of you. Uh, made the character sound so much more important than it actually was. <laughs> we got to talk and we're like, well, maybe that character deserves the spinoff that Alex thinks mm -hmm. it does. Mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. here to announce and exclusive that we're going to be launching Doc and Key after yes. the uh, after the Doc, show launches. Doc uh, and Key. This is, oh, I man. say without exaggeration, the best day of my life. Uh, <laughs> just to take a little bit, step back into uh, into seriousness, I, I am curious, given that Gabriel and Joe really just started rolling with this book, coming up with ideas, uh, working simpatico, as you said, because I imagine a couple of people, at least a couple of people listening to this podcast won't be totally familiar with comic books or how they work. What is your job then as editor? You know, it obviously is not just them rolling with it and going with Jay and Robbie and making a comic book rogue or anything, but where does the editor come into this in terms of shaping the story and pushing it forward? Um, you sort of oversee and are involved in every detail. And some of that is just the mechanical stuff of keeping the pages moving and finding the colorists and going through the lettering proofs and all of those sort of copy editing stages. But, but sort of the grander part of the role is working with the guys on the story. So talking to Joe about how the story is going to play out in the first book, issue by issue, sort of beating out beat by beat, um, the plot points, where it's all going to go. And then, 
we all just sort of become sounding boards for each other as we're going along. Gabe will say, what if I do this? Joe will say, what if I do this? And I'll say, have you guys thought about this? And it all just becomes part of a, a unit all rolling toward, you know, just telling the best story you can. So I, I'm sort of involved in both of those sides. You know, it was, it was the, the mechanical guts of editing a book, but also sort of the, the bigger parts of helping craft the story and suggest things where I can and knowing also when to get out of the way. There's also the media side of things, which we've been talking about a bit on the podcast as things went along. And you've certainly been very involved in IDW for a very long time here. Uh, the book got picked up by Dimension Films the same month that first issue came out. What was it like behind the scenes when that happened? How did that affect the development of the book going forward? What did that do to your side of the business? I don't know that that timing is exactly right. Like the first issue kind of came out very quietly. Um, you know, it, it was funny because when it when it was first about to come out, we saw that Joe was going to be on Good Morning America, or one of the morning shows, to talk about his first novel. And so we thought, well, let's let's watch this. I'll I'll get around to your actual question in a second. Sure. Um, <laughs> and so we thought, well, let's let's watch this interview and see if this this guy can put two sentences together, or you know, or if he's just some shut-in writer who doesn't know how to you know function in public. And so he comes out and sits down to do this interview, and he's bearded and he's looking like Joe, and, and but he also looks like another figure we're all familiar with and and the interviewer goes so how's it feel to have stephen king as your father and we're like holy shit it's like it's like when the green goblin's mask comes off i mean not that joe's <laughs> the super villain here but no but you're like he's oh, a that's villain. An interesting detail i didn't know that and then we all oh, went hilarious. okay well, let's get back to work and and go make this comic but it, so it was a it was an interesting thing to learn but it wasn't like we never used that to sell the book um so when the book came out it was just a book by two guys who weren't really established in comics. And so, you know, it didn't sell great. That's why the first issue I think is really hard to track down um, or really expensive to track down anyway. And so it got attention really quickly after that. And it was, it was great. But a lot of us were like, let's, let's see how the story goes. Like we, Mm -hmm. we have a sense of where this first book's going to go. But as far as filmmakers wanting to know where the story is ultimately headed, you know, Joe had a roadmap and Joe knew what he wanted to do. Should, the series be able to keep going but he said well let's do six issues and hope for the best but beyond that i don't want to get too far down the road because it may not sell it may not work you know to keep it going and so we thought this is great it's great to have attention it's great to have sort of broader attention for a project but also let's make the comic really good first before we go too far down that road mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean then Continuing to walk along this path, there's been a bunch of different takes, tries at Lock and Key, both from the movie perspective and the TV perspective, before ultimately it has ended up Netflix. Uh, I'm curious to get your impressions. I know Joe and Gabe were on set at the uh, Fox pilot, and I believe you were on set. You were also on set for that? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, like, sort of your on set experiences always color your your impression (laughs) of anything, but. I thought all three versions of Lock and Key have been good in their own ways. Um, the Mark Romanek pilot was was really good, but it, it wasn't, you know, it was a different TV world. And so it, it yeah. ended and it wasn't like, I need to hit the next episode right away. It was like, that's a good pilot, but it wasn't like, it didn't end on sort of that compelling cliffhanger-y mm-hmm. grabber that the streaming shows now aim for. So 
I we were all gutted that Fox passed on it, and Fox said, no, it's a little too dark for us, and then they greenlit a serial killer show with Kevin Bacon, so I don't know how they yeah. find color. <laughs> we also kind of said, well, didn't, didn't you guys read the book? You know, like you knew what you were buying. Um, yeah, they don't uh, touch comics. Yeah, but so it was fine, but I thought the Hulu version was improved. I thought the Machetes did a great job with it, um, and I think that the Netflix version is really the best version of this comic for the platform that it's on. So I don't know if I answered the question. But anyway, yeah, I was on the set with Joe and Gabe on the first one. So I th- think I feel most strongly about that for that reason. Like that was the first time we were really all together. And then we went and visited, um, not too long after we visited some of the, the haunts near Joe's house where the book was actually set, you know, the cave that actually inspired the drowning cave and all of that. And so oh, wow. to see the real lock and key together with the writer and artist and experience that together was it made all of that really special. The Hulu show, Joe's schedule, he had a conflict. Um, I don't remember if it was a TV show or a book or a movie, but he couldn't be there the same time Gabe and I were. So Gabe and I visited that one, saw some really fun scenes, really liked what they were doing, but it didn't have that same sense of camaraderie because we weren't all on set together. And then when we were all in Toronto for the Netflix show, it was great again because it was just to be able to experience the show through those guys and see the, the wonderment from all of us, you know, that, Oh man, the stuff that was just on paper is now being brought to life in such caring, vivid ways is, is always really exciting. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about the TV world being very different, but also IDW is very different. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about this as well, but back when the Fox pilot came around, IDW wasn't necessarily as confident and experienced in TV shows as it is now with, you know, there's uh, Winona Earp, uh, Dirk Gently is uh, back there somewhere. There's uh, October Faction, right? Just came just out. Launched, yeah, yeah, just launched. Yeah, just launched as well. So this is a very different world going into this finally launching version of Lock and Key on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, some could argue, and they'd be right to say that the Lock and Key pilot experience through Fox was the catalyst for us forming our own entertainment division. <laughs> wow. Cause, oh, wow. Cause you go through these things where your your project is option, and you're like, holy shit, things are going to happen. You know, you're like Steve Martin in The Jerk, if I can make a 40-year-old reference. Um, yes. <laughs> you, you <laughs> yeah. Oof, finally. You're like, things are going to start happening to us now, and then the pilot craps out, and then... <laughs> Then the option they is, hate is, these cans. Yeah, and they hate that pilot. Um, <laughs> but so then it sort of just drove everybody here to want to be more in control of our own destiny. And so you're like, well, if we option it, I mean, we if we build this entertainment division, yes, it, it's much more of a costly proposition up front because you have to you finance a lot of everything up front to build these shows, but you also have much more control over them. Um, and so the Fox pilot was really the thing like that, not working like our flagship book. And I think the best thing we've ever published, not working like it did is the thing that made us want to really make it work. And so, you know, it takes some time to, to build a division, especially in, in the TV world. But I think now, like we feel really good about where it's all headed. Yeah. I have to imagine I, uh, I wasn't at the San Diego, the first screening and panel, but I went to the encore screening at San Diego Comic-Con. And I just remember that San Diego Comic-Con beyond being blown away that I was seeing lock and key on the big screen, you know, the pilot uh, talking to people about how positive the reaction was to that after IDW was allowed to show that off, which also yeah. relatively <laughs> unprecedented. That must have been very encouraging in that direction as well. 
It's also kind of why we stopped showing it, or we, well, we stopped getting permission to show it, because it was like we showed this pilot, and the fans loved it. And then yeah. the fans were like, hey, Fox, what the... Like, why didn't you put this up? And Fox goes, you should maybe stop embarrassing us now and having us answer, have to answer that question. And so, you know, that's not a thing that we can show at cons anymore. Although, I'd love to do some kind of a lock and key film festival where we do all three. You oh, know, wow. all three oh, have yeah. That would be three great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of those things that's probably only allowed with bootleg copies or in your <laughs> bedroom or something. But uh, <laughs> if you have a big enough bedroom to host it, like I could probably arrange that. I don't. I don't have a bedroom, so maybe one of you guys. Yeah, yeah. He sleeps in the doghouse. Pete, <laughs> I, f- I think you were going to ask a question. I felt like yeah, I saw your I little had finger a sticking up. I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> First off, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for put, putting these two amazing artists together and giving us lock and key. Uh, the other thing is, like, from somebody who didn't know these two names, I think that speaks so much about the book and how creative and how amazing it was. It didn't have any steam behind it. It was like, hey, what's this? I'm going to check it out. And it just kind of took off on its own merits because it was so well done. Uh, were there certain moments we kind of went through and talked about some of our favorite moments because you got to kind of like see how, you know, it was made. Was there certain things that when you finally saw it in the book, you were like so proud of or so moved by? You know, it's funny because I actually did went back. It was your podcast. That was the catalyst for that. And with the show coming is like, I really want to do a full reread of the series. And so it occurred to me, like, I've never read it just front to back as a reader. Like I was so in the trenches working on it that a lot of it is you're living page by page. And it's great because I'm the first one to see Gabe's art when it comes in. And oh, I, I, I love the details of it. Like when, when Gabe, you know, you asked for key moments and, and, like when Gabe delivered that head key spread and you look inside Bodhi's head oh, and it, yeah. it, it was written beautifully on the page, but Gabe made that so much more like it's, it's such a gorgeous thing, you know, and just so captures what a, a eight year old or nine year old's head would have in it that it's just, it's one of those things where you're just like, Oh my God, this is so, this is so gratifying. This is a thing that I'll take with me for, whatever I end up doing through the rest of my life. Like it's that special of a moment. Hmm. Um, but it, the reread of it, what really got me was a couple of things. One is how fucking self-assured and confident and good Joe Hill was right from the start. Yeah. yeah. And he's self-deprecating about it. He'll say, yeah, oh, I wrote this throwaway Spider-Man story and I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, but, but that the, is the story he tells. Yeah, but the stuff he set up in the first issue, you know, you, when you see it pay off in a book that he didn't know we'd ever get to, um, and just how well thought out, you know, and of course it makes sense. He's a novelist. And so he would have this whole arc in mind, but just how, how much it not only paid off at the end, but just the confidence in, in the storytelling throughout. Like, I know you guys have talked a lot about how they've played with so many different conventions and comics. They did sure. the, uh, you know, the Calvin and Hobbes issue and the giant splash page issue and all of in February being such a, uh, special thing. But I think the one that really got me was the Joe Ridgeway story. Um, mm, you know, yeah. Joe, Joe does, um, the first book and we go, okay, it sold well enough, not great, but it sold well enough that we can do more. Let's do a second series. And he launches head games with a standalone issue with a, a secondary character. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> like that's that every editor would tell you is death. Like you don't do that with a second. You, you just come out with a, a big bang. You need to sort of, 
amp things up even more. And he told a quiet, touching story that nevertheless moved the story forward. But it was just so rereading it. It was just like, God damn, that was self-assured and smart and just. Well, risky. I mean, that's so uh, on reread because I, in the same way, like I had only read it issue by issue when it was coming out and we obviously loved and raved about it, but reading it all as a piece is wild. Those like that definitely stuck out the beginnings and ends of each arc are so such weird or surprising uh, choices that work like you're saying, but catch you off guard every time. Yeah, I mean, and I, I just think it's a real testament to uh, the editor for you know allowing all this. <laughs> yeah. That editor, uh, <laughs> that editor. I was uh, I was talking to those guys recently, and I was complimenting them like on all of these things. And I'm like, man, I've, I reread this just as a reader, and I was captivated. I was I was like, I got teared up again when Mark Cho died, and like. Uh-huh. All of these different things that happened, like that I was experiencing in a totally different way and how special it was and how smart it was. Now, each of it, the, the volumes were like very much their own thing. And you don't even get that in a lot of ongoing series. And I'm going on and on to like all this effusive praise all over again. And they go, you never read the book before, did you? <laughs> <laughs> and I did, but not in the same way. So it's it's been really fun to sort of re-experience it in the way that readers experience it. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about uh, with that first issue being so confident, and I believe this is something we talked about on the podcast as well as when we talked to Gabriel, where he explained that uh, you know Joe's original scripts were about sixty pages long, when generally you'd expect about thirty pages long. But at the same time, when you're looking at it on the page, it doesn't have that feel. That thing that happens sometimes when novelists will write a comic book for the first time, where it's not a comic book, it's a novel that's broken up into panels. And so would you say, I mean, that's naturally just something Joe did? Was that something you had to help him shape? How did it come about? (laughs) That that is another part of the editor's job, at least in this case, which is where Joe says, it's a 22-page issue. Oh, here's the script. By the way, I need 32 pages. Could you go convince the owners to uh, not only pay for 10 more pages, but get rid of all ads and, uh, and and make this fit whatever length that I think it needs to be? And so every now and then we would weed something down from 32 to 28, or he would, on another pass, realize that maybe this scene didn't need to be there. It could be consolidated. But a lot of it was, yeah, I mean, you know, comics typically stick to the same length, and that part of that is because you're budgeted at a certain length, and when Joe goes, well, I need eight more pages to tell this story right. And then you read it, you're like, well, of course you do. Yeah, you have. To. <laughs> and so, so then you go back and you make that happen. Um, but it was, yeah, every issue you're like, is it going to be 22? Is it going to be 32? And then Gabe's like, but I still have a month to draw this. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, we were all sort of, the, uh, yeah, we were all kind of the moons, you know, orbiting around Joe, uh, as the story sort of flowed out of him, but we were all happy to accommodate. Now, editors are always, uh, or most often probably saying, I think that it should be a little bit shorter. Uh, was there ever a moment working on this that you were like, oh, I think that needs to expand more. Can you go into more detail here? No, no. I mean, I, I, I think as the stories were developing, you sort of realized where they needed more space. Um, or, you know, in the case, like when we got toward Alpha and Omega and it became seven issues and a couple were double sized and all of that, like we knew going into that, that it needed that kind of space. And so there was, there was never really any truncating or any need to expand beyond what it was, because then you also don't want to get to a point where you feel like anything is padded or anything is superfluous. And I, I feel like that's one thing this series did really well was 
sort of make sure that what it was giving you was what it sh- should have been to serve the story and not not too much, but also not giving anything short tripped. Yeah. It's not exactly unheard of, but it's certainly rare to see the same creative team on one title for so long. And going forward, even from now with the Golden Age one shots and what's coming up with World War Key, was there ever any thought of, say, bringing in another artist or spinning it off with another creative team, having Lock and Key the next generation or something like that? No, I mean, Joe and I talked early on about Smart. that. He said, he, Joe said he didn't have interest in, in franchising the thing in that way. And as much as everybody's kind of intrigued by the idea of really good artists drawing these characters, and, you know, you could argue that that's how a thing goes from being a successful title to being a whatever that next thing is, a, a franchise or what have you. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that it's these two guys, and really with Colors J Photos, too, and all of us mm. have been so in sync the whole way that I, it would just feel wrong. Even this sounds really stupid, but at the end of uh, at the end of the run, I wanted to get Joe variant covers by guys that he's loved growing up. You know, I, I so Bernie Wrightson and Michael Kaluta and some of the other people that did the variant covers. Even the variant covers felt wrong. <laughs> Wrightson drew a beautiful cave and drew a beautiful everything because everything Bernie drew is beautiful, but it it still was like. It's not our lock and key, though. And so when we've talked about other things to do with the series or where it might go going forward, I want to do it with those guys. And I I just feel like it would be sort of wrong to go forward in other directions without. And I don't think Gabe would want to see somebody else draw his characters. And I don't think Joe would want to do a book without. No, I know. and there's something to be said for that singular vision because, like, when we like seeing just the trailer for the Lock and Key series on Netflix, like, it's it's like Gabriel's look. It's like right there, and there's no other way to even interpret it or think about it. It's like right there on the screen, the same way it was on the page, and that's so exciting uh, to see. Yeah, and along the way, there were there were these artists collectives that would do theme weeks, you know, and so there were people like David LaFuente and all kinds of different great right. artists who, and Ryan Otley and others who drew lock and key or that have drawn lock and key for Inktober. And so we've gotten to see really good artists take on the characters. But for me, like they sort of stopped being characters early on. Like when I could see their characters age and I could see their faces subtly shift in the way Gabriel was yeah. drawing them. And you could see Tyler, you know, mature in ways that you rarely see in comic art. Like it's like, well, yeah, nobody else can do that nobody else should do that like that has to just be joe and gabe and jay thank you yeah well let's talk about it going forward then we did talk to gabriel about this a bit and he mentioned that they're working on i believe the next slash final golden age issue and then beyond that they're planning world war key which would be the sequel series or a series of series um to the original lock and key story what can you tell us about that? What what could you tease about any of the plans? I can tell you that it should have been plural when uh, when Gabe said the final Golden Age stories because there's mm-hmm. there's a bit more to that. Um, Ooh, good. And then yeah, I mean there's there's World War Key, but there's also the Revolutionary War story that Joe wants to tell, and so there's Joe has a good six more books in him that uh, he he is eager. To get on to. And so I'm here to announce that every Hill House project at DC is 
been canceled, like effective. Shut it down. Yeah. Not going to get another series or uh, season on TV. Like the books have got to stop. He really should stop parenting. Um, yeah. We just need this lock key to happen as soon as it can. So, no, I mean, he's, he's already started scribbling away on uh, the next golden age story. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to just jump back into all of this. That's very cool. Yeah, we're excited, too. Uh, let's talk about the Netflix series a little bit. I mean, I know we touched on it, but we talked about being on set for Hulu. We talked about being on set for Fox. Why? We're not plugging for spoilers or anything, but why do you think it is that the Netflix series is the one that finally moved forward? I think with a lot of these things, you sort of have the benefit of hindsight. So you can you can look at what you think worked. And you can also, I mean, I think Netflix knows better than anyone what what's going to work for their audiences and how to make a compelling show that keeps people wanting to go from episode to episode without sleep or eating. Um, and also just the, the creative talent that's working on the show, you know, they're working closely with Joe and Carlton and Meredith are really smart and good and had a great plan for this. And it just feels like not that the others weren't really good. I mean, Carlton was involved in the Hulu show as well. And, you know, same was Jackson Robert Scott was involved in the Hulu show as well. And, and I just think sort of getting all of these different pieces right and then jettisoning, jettisoning the things that maybe didn't flow as well for what they want a streaming show to be. Um, getting the cast just like the cast is so in sync. And when I see Darby posting pictures of the family, you know, she plays Nina um, on, on the show on Instagram and it just, like they're so familial and we, when we were on set watching them interact together, even when they're not shooting and the playfulness and sort of the banter and bickering and just, it's really charming. And it feels like they really just sort of synced up in, in, in really cool ways. So it feels, they just all feel really invested in what they're doing. And that, that came through as we were watching it. Yeah, that's definitely really rare. I mean, looking at them on Twitter in particular, you mentioned Darby Stanchfield, uh, and people probably know her from Scandal, uh, playing Abby Wheel there, which is a very different role than Nina Locke. But she's been mm. posting comic tutorials on Instagram, telling people, yeah. here's how to get into Lock and Key. That's got to feel great and feel like, oh, we got the right people on board. It's so great. And even when you look at Connor, you're like, man, Connor is such a good Tyler. And then I think it was... Again, like listening to the podcast, and you guys brought up that um, I forgot that Jesse McCartney was our Tyler. Like, yeah, that's yeah. out of the box casting. Um, <laughs> we, we were like, really? And he was fine, and he was good in the pilot. But I, I feel like Connor's got a great handle on the character and sort of looks the part. And it, I don't know. I'm, I'm just so happy that like, not only did it does it feel like it's gotten right, but that it's upon us. You know, in like two weeks. Yeah. People can watch this like that's yeah. so exciting yeah. yeah this you might not have exact figures or anything like that uh, and i'm not fishing for those but have you already seen from the hype over the netflix series has that fallen back onto the comic book sales at all have they increased changed or is it too early going with that there's been a ton of book interest um and penguin random house is managing the the, the book side of our business too and they weren't around the first time lock and key came out in book form and so so yeah, just there's there's been a lot of interest and it's great because with a lot of these books that have been around, you, you sort of wonder like, well, does everybody that wants a lock and key have a lock and key? But not at all. Like I think there's a ton of people who are going to get exposed to this, you know, through the show and then be drawn back to the source material. And the nice thing is 
the source material is really good, so I'm excited yeah. by that. You know, sometimes a show can be much better than its its print roots, and so you're like, well, maybe you don't delve too far back into into the past. But luckily here, it's like I want people to be driven from the show to the books because the books are like, you know, we all know they're so good. Yeah. So well, it good. seems like for a lot of shows, like the source material is a springboard and then they go and do whatever. But based on what we know, it feels like it's not that it's telling the story in a different form, uh, which that would make sense. The going back to the comic is just another way of, of seeing the thing you uh, like. Yeah, it, it's funny from from like the publisher perspective, everybody wants that Walking Dead thing, you know, where the book sales just exploded through any conceivable roof and kept going for years and years. And we're not really in a world where that's even a likely scenario anymore because everything is either a streaming service where here's all 10 episodes in one week. And so you don't have that weekly years long program like the walking dead. And this is, you know, just, this is the sort of stuff we obsess over on this end, but, but also, you know, I think just the interest in the show and Netflix has been great about pushing the show. And, you know, there's billboards going up on sunset Boulevard in LA. And like, that's like, there's a huge push to make the show really big and important. And I love that because that's only going to lead people to the books. And that's all we want is, I mean, I, I love that the show's good and that people will get that version of, of lock and key, but I, I want them reading the books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so how do you prepare for something like that from the publisher perspective? Is it just a lot of calls and a lot of books? Yeah. (laughs) You print a lot of books and you you keep the printer sort of on hold for the next printing and the next printing, Mm -hmm. because the last thing you want is, you know, we've, there's been the occasional show that, that launches and then you go check Amazon to buy the books and it's like out of stock for three weeks. And you're like, Mm -hmm. That you can't miss that window, and I understand. Like you can't, you can't print endless amounts, and sometimes you know there's books moving around that aren't where they need to be on time, and that's sometimes out of your control. And so for us, it's like this is a book we've always kept in stock. You know, it's a book we will always keep in print, um, and so we just make sure that there's a lot of them to to serve everybody who wants them. And you never know. Like sometimes the demand can still outstrip no matter how many books that you think you need. And so you just, you just try to keep them flowing. So is there, are there any thoughts to have a Netflix edition with like, say the Netflix cast on the cover or anything like that? We talked about it, but I don't know. I I mean, I'm sure there'll be a version at some point, but part of it is us and Netflix included. Don't like, I don't want to cheapen Gabriel, you know, and the Mm. Gabe's books are so beautifully designed and they're all, so of a similar theme. And so I think it's fun like to, to potentially do a comic reprint or something that's got the show on it or, or in some form. But I mean, for the most part, I want the books that people get to be as Gabe wants them to look. So maybe just a picture of Gabriel on the cover <laughs> or the actor playing Gabriel. If you know, cause Gabe does cameo in the, in the comic. And so, yeah. Who knows? That character might play an even bigger role than uh, Dr. Zalbin. That that seems impossible. impossible. I I don't think that would happen. Before we let you go, Chris, and I do know we need to let you go in a minute, uh, what do you want to plug on your end? Obviously, pick up Lock and Key, uh, but anything else people should be checking out from you? I mean, I guess I'd say everything. People should just buy everything at all times. (laughs) I get up you and just enjoy. Um, No, I don't know. it's, It's one of those things that's hard to play favorites because you know i i love all my children but but 
this this one was really special to me. And so it's funny, like I'll do panels and I'll talk about how Lock and Key was one of my favorite books and favorite experiences. And other people that weren't on Lock and Key that did books for us are like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I love you too, but you're just not quite as good. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's the last so, thing they wanted. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think the things we're excited about is like the company's always done a mix of, you know, creator developed books like Lock and Key and the licensed stuff like Transformers and Star Trek, which are going along fine. You know, Ninja Turtles is hit issue 100 and it's really exciting that it's still yeah. so, so such a sustained enthusiasm for that book. But we're doing books with Smithsonian next year. We're doing the um, books in North America and Spanish language, which nobody really does. And so I'm excited to to not only continue doing what we've been doing, but push us into these different areas that that just kind of expand the scope of what we do. Like that, all of that's exciting to me. All right. Uh, what's your favorite key from Lock and Key, real Ooh. quick? Oh man, this is one of those things where I I mean probably the head key because then when people say do you read everything IDW publishes? Um, I could just cram every single book we published, including all the old Dick Tracy strip books and everything else in my head that is really hard to find time to read and just be like, yes, I've read them all. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've learned the lesson of the head key in the book, because that doesn't always work out. Exactly. No, no, I, c- I could cite specifics in the strips, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to interpret them. because, but, but still, just having that useless comic knowledge in my head is kind of just a grander extension of how I live my life anyway. True that. Been there. Still there. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the time. Uh, congratulations on all the success with Lock and Key, and we can't wait to read more of it, hopefully by the end of this year. There will certainly be more. There'll be a very exciting announcement, I'd say, within about a month's time. Um, and, you know, back to you guys. I really like what you do. You're, it's a very fun, engaging podcast, and I appreciate the uh, support and praise and everything you guys are doing on your end, too. Hey, oh, thank you oh, so much. Thanks. We love doing yeah, it. Congratulations. A uh, couple of quick things before we wrap up this podcast here. If you would like to support us, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater Loft in New York. Come on by. We will definitely talk to you about Lock and Key. Also, socially, you can follow us at Lock and Key Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice to listen to the podcast, comicbookclublive.com for this podcast and more. And remember, keep it locked right here.